0: Welcome back to Backyard Geology Canada Edition. I am your host, Serena, back for another bonus episode. To avoid any spoilers, make sure you first listen to episode seven of this season of Backyard Geology, where I visit Whitehorse, Yukon, to recount the rich history of Canyon City during the Klondike Gold Rush. The end of the 19th century brought with it a short but intense period in mining history in northern Canada, as stampeders from across North America trekked up north after gold was discovered in the Klondike region of the Yukon. The journey north was not for the faint of heart. Frigid conditions and rough waters posed threats to stampeders, as did mining conditions once they got there. Today, I am joined by geologist Sydney Van Loon in Whitehorse from the Yukon Geological Survey to learn more about the gold rush and how we are using archives from the gold rush to understand gold deposits today. Hello, Sydney. Hi there. You work for the Yukon Geological Survey. A number of students I know have had summer jobs with the Ontario Geological Survey, though I personally have not. If you work in the field, positions with the OGS and I imagine the YGS as well seem like great ways to see Canadian geology. Yes,
1: it's an excellent, that's how I got my start in uh, the Yukon, in fact, was being hired as a summer student back in 2008. So I've been very fortunate to work alongside with my colleagues here at the Yukon Geological Survey and Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great place to be about, with passionate geologists and uh, doing some really interesting work. So thanks for
0: having me. That's, that's great to hear because as I mentioned, I know a lot, of, a lot of students who have had jobs with the OGS. So hearing you building a career from it is, is great. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to learning more about the Gold Rush and Yukon geology throughout our chat today. Would you please introduce yourself to listeners?
1: I'm Sydney Van Loon, and uh, like I mentioned, I work at the Yukon Geological Survey, and I'm a Placer geology technician. So what I do at the survey is largely work with the placer mining industry here in the territory. That encompasses uh, mainly conducting site visits to active operations, and uh, what we do is that we, uh, we support the industry by offering geology advice, talking about geology, what operators are mining, how to mine it. We're sort of this uh, pretty unique part of the survey where my boss, Jeff Bond, and I really immerse ourselves in Yukon Placer, the placer industry. With that, I write reports. I do specific creek studies. I'm I'm largely focused on client requests. And uh, one of the biggest aspects of my job is working with this historic data that uh,
0: you talked about from the Gold Rush. Yes, we are absolutely going to get into that. For our listeners, would you mind giving a description of plaster geology? So plaster
1: mining is uh, a fairly unique industry in the sense that we in the Yukon have a very large industry. It is uh, It has been around, obviously, since the Gold Rush. Uh, before that, even, you know, gold has drew a lot of people to the north and, I mean, across... North America, but largely focused in the Yukon since the gold rush in 1896. Placer mining is basically getting gold out of gravel through washing it. So there's no chemicals, there's no blasting. It's all getting f- gold that is already liberated or free gold that is in creek gravels, and you're using water and gravity to separate it. Again, there's no for people for listeners to understand that there is no chemicals used, and what it does, um, it's uh. Yeah. So miners go into these creeks and they basically are looking for gravel that is economic to mine. And yeah, here in the Yukon, we call it the family farms, of the north. It's a pretty important industry for us and has been around for quite a while. Obviously, since Gold Rush, <laughs> it's been our one of our largest economic drivers here in the Yukon. And we uh, we're
0: still going pretty strong in the industry. You mentioned the family that they are the family farms of the north. Is it truly like a family business up north in some places?
1: Yes. So to summarize the industry a bit further, we on average have about 160 mining operations active in the Yukon each season. So when I say active, I say people sluicing gravel. Of course, there's prospectors, there's Miners conducting exploration, but we count that tally based on who is actually washing gravel. The uniqueness about placer industry, particularly up here, is that we have all sort of scales. It's a very welcoming industry in the sense that we have people on Pound Creek still just hand shoveling into a sluice box like they did in the gold rush. And then we also have operators up to 30 employees, you know, operating dozen pieces of heavy equipment. So it's a broad range of who is involved in the placer industry. And it is yeah family farm in the north. So very interesting and a really riveting, unique industry to be a part of because it is, it feels very small. Yeah, it's just a really unique setting, I think. Absolutely small and
0: unique in in Canada, at least. Is that correct? Yes. Out of my own curiosity, is gold panning something you can do like as a tourist in the Yukon? So
1: in the Yukon, as since we were founded on the gold rush, there is actually a free claim in Dawson City where the discovery of that spurred the initiation of the gold rush. You can actually pan there today. Uh, It's part of the Klondike Visitors Association. So uh, it's pretty neat. You can go up to the creek and uh, visitors are totally welcome to go up there and pan. It's for free. And you could spend the day there and picnic and kind of immerse yourself in the plaster industry and kind of feel like
0: it was maybe back in eighteen ninety-six. It's interesting. You can hear to hear that visitors can just you can do that. Anybody can do it. Because for example, I was talking about earlier in the podcast series was looking at fossils in Alberta and there's quite strict laws on on fossils because there's so many of them in Alberta and they're so important.
1: They try to restrict, I mean you panning, you can't just kind of show up and sort of start doing it everywhere. And so they like, yeah, we really try to focus tourists to go up Bonanza Creek and Dawson. And uh, if you want to submerge yourself in Gold Rush history, there's no other place, obviously, than Dawson City. So yeah, and we could talk about that later here to when I dive into the world of dredging and all the industrious mining that has occurred in the
0: small little town of Dawson. You mentioned small-scale family operations and then larger-scale operations. I'd love to hear more about the larger-scale mining operations, because that's that's what I'm familiar with in in Ontario here, we have big large-scale mining operations. So what does large-scale placer mining look like?
1: So a large-scale placer operation, it is quite different from what you potentially think of when you think of a hard rock operation. You have people, so placer deposits can be in the modern creek gravels. They can be in bench deposits. Uh, they can be on top in upper high-level bench deposits. Um, so there's there's a bit of different settings there where physically a miner is mining in a drainage. But you know when you go to a large-scale placer operation, you'll see you'll see. Fairly large cuts, and what they're doing is that they're stripping off that overburden, and in the Klondike that includes thick packages of black frozen muck or permafrost. And so once they go through this thick permafrost, they get to the sluiceable creek gravel. And uh, so these cuts, in a in a large operation, you can see cuts up to 500 meters long by, you know, 250 meters wide. So that's a pretty substantial cut, and you know, a big operator can will process to maybe start stripping a third cut that size don't actually know i should know what uh, like how much like total yardage moved but i don't have that off the top of my head but um yeah so a large scale you see heavy equipment you know stripping permafrost you see haul trucks hauling away that pay gravel you see sluice plants using water to wash out that gold from the gravel and uh yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's 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 a fairly small thing compared to what you would kind of imagine, or sorry, what you would see in a in a hard rock uh,
0: mining project in Alberta, where one of the po- podcasts took place. Uh, we talked about some of the ancient river deposits there, because obviously there was all these creeks, sort of on the edge of the Western Interior Seaway, rivers and rivers and river features. Are you mining like ancient gravel deposits, like? where there isn't a creek or river currently
1: so in the in the klondike in particular it was never glaciated during the glacial maximum, ice never breached over into the Klondike area. Therefore, the landscape is quite old. There has been a lot of time for weathering and reconcentrating of gold in these valley bottoms. And so with that, I mean, a large target for placer miners is, is the valley bottoms. That's a modern gravel. Sometimes there's the paleo channel is in, preserved in the bottom of the valley. Um, but you also yeah, have all different levels of benching. And these benches can be like on Bonanza Creek, for example, you have a high level bench where that initial paleo river has been stranded in the high level. And during incision, it was just never reworked into the valley bottom. So yes, paleo channels are definitely a target for placer operators. We have placer operators mining paleo channels, like I mentioned on the high benches, you have mid or reworked channels mined in mid-level and low-level benches and modern creek gravel in the valley bottoms.
0: So I'd like to jump back to 2019. I saw in the media that you worked with archives from the gold rush. In the episode based in Whitehorse, I talked a lot about the Miles Canyon and the Whitehorse Rapids and how that posed a bit of a a risk for stampeders going up north in the treacherous journey up to the gold, up to Dawson City. So I'm interested to hear about that project. What were the goals of this project? So I'll step
1: it back to when I started working with the plaster industry in 2013, and a big initiative of theirs, of the sorry, there's something called the Klondike Placer Miners Association, and what they do is uh, they locally support the placer miners. They uh, distribute information, you know, help with regulations, and, and they're non-government, but they're they're an association that supports placer mining throughout the Yukon. But uh, they're called the placer, or sorry, they're called the. Klondike Plaster Mine Association. So anyway, from them, they really supported us at YGS to acquire this historic data. What is that historic data? I'll, I'll back up there. Is uh, because of the Klondike, there was a ton of people obviously in those drainages. Uh, even before the initial gold rush, we have had people panning on sandbars, we have had dredges. Anyway, we've just we've had a lot of mining history here. And as a result, we have documents. One of the main companies that this KPMA initiative and the mining industry supported me to do was go to National Archives in Ottawa and see what's available. So when you walk around Dawson City today, you see these big dredge piles, uh, you see, you know, historic workings. you see old shafts where old timers would have dug by hand down through the permafrost to get to the gravel. You know, you see people mining on the free claim. It's just really a neat It's. I don't know. I mean, there must be other places like it that that you look around, you see that there must have been a boatload of documentation. So anyway, this stuff resides at National Archives. When I went there, I didn't know what to expect. And now today in 2021, uh, what we do here at the survey and obtaining, digitizing and working with that historic data has been incredibly valuable to the industry.
0: You've clearly worked with quite a lot of materials from the gold rush, and you also know about the industry, about plaster mining in the Yukon. Can you step back a bit and describe the evolution of the gold rush back in the late 19th century? So even prior to
1: discovery in 1896, there were people panning with a pan on sandbars, you know, looking for the big strike. We had settlements, establishments outside of the Klondike and those were actively mining. This was all hand mining, this is a shafting. So for those that don't know what shafting is, a shaft can be, you know, a two meter by two meter hole where if a if miner is in permafrost, they're, they're thawing their way down with a fire. And so, you know, sometimes in in the Klondike, this can be 30, 40, 50 meters deep. And as you can appreciate, that is a substantial amount of time and effort and determination. So you had old, we call them old timers. So old timers are non-gender specific, but just refer to the people that were on the creek back in these early days. And uh, so initially mining started off like that. Very, a lot of hard work, very dedicated individuals real true prospectors and explorers and, you know, living in elements that continue to blow our mind every day. You know, we we see these evidence of shafts and in particular in a shaft, when you're sinking and you're thawing frozen black muck, you have to crib it with wood. So cribbing like, you know, build like a structure around the walls as you go down so it doesn't cave in. And then even today we see, we find the ladders that these old timers use to go down these shafts where they hand drill doweling you know, created dowel rungs to walk down them. And just, anyway, I can, I can truly appreciate as with- Intense determination. Intense determination, exactly. So with that, there was a bit of transition. So we had the, the hand miners predominantly in 1896, 97, and it wasn't until 1901 that the first dredge moved into the Klondike. And so that dredge, so a dredge uh, is, a, is a, basically a boat that floats in its own pond. So it has pontoons and inside that boat is, is, is a thing we call a trommel. So this trommel is like a spinning sphere. It's a wash plant. And what it does is that this, this boat is digging gravel in a bucket line and bringing gravel up into dumping it into that trommel with water, high pressure water. It is washing that gravel and it, the trommel is a screen, so anything finer than, say, three-quarter inch material is falling out and reconcentrating gold at the bottom of this trommel. And uh, yeah, dredging is very efficient. And uh, these things, I- I'm not, you know, when you when you drive around the Klondike, you see old dredges parked everywhere, and for Yukoners, they're pretty prominent, neat uh, artifacts, really, for us. So. We had up to, you know, there was up to 12 dredges operating in the Klondike at one time. And uh, the last active dredge was in 1966. Between that period, you know, the early 1900s, you know, 1910, 11 to 1966, that was the main method of mining was dredging. Dawson was a dredge town. And uh, you had these big, you know, you could hear those trommels and the gravel churning from from Dawson City. And then you kind of had an evolution into you know, cat mining, which is bulldozer mining. So just kind of pushing material into a box, into a wash plant and separating gravel and gold using gravity. And then, uh, and now into the modern, you know, we have efficient, we have excavators and bulldozers and conveyors, like more efficient mining
0: techniques. But um, yes, so that's a bit of the evolution of placer mining. Excellent. I love that you mentioned artifacts like the old shafts and the old dredges and looking at these ancient mining strategies. It does give you an appreciation of the kind of work that, as you said, the old timers would would do. couldn't imagine how much work that would be, especially without, for example, modern geophysical survey methods to help you pinpoint what you're looking for.
1: Right, it's it's absolutely incredible where these old timers went. You know, it, it's it's kind of puzzling sometimes when, when we talked about paleo channels there. You know, and 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 we've used geophysics or drilling to determine them, but yet an operator will find this and go into this deposit, and then boom, there will be a series of shafts. And so it's amazing. How do they know? How do they find it? I mean. I think that they were just incredibly determined. There was a lot of people out in the creek. So by it has to be by chance unless there's some sort of plaster, gold, I don't know, you know, dousing or some sort of like, I don't know, witchcraft. I mean, I should call it witchcraft. I don't know. It's, it's just it's incredible when you uh, how many old timers workings are still, uh, you know,
0: uncovered every day in the Klondike. In the earlier podcast in Whitehorse, I talked about the journey up to the Klondike and just how treacherous that was. So that shows you firsthand the determination. And then you get up there and you have all these insane mining setups that would have been so taxing on the human body (laughs) and probably the mind too.
1: Yeah. The bottom of a shaft. Can you imagine being in the bottom of the shaft in the middle of winter, like mining along with a candlelight? you know, just looking up. Yeah, it's crazy. It's totally like we can't even fathom that kind of work and effort. And that's what I think is really neat about Placer. You know, there's a really rich history to that industry. And I think that's pretty special. And uh, I think a lot of Yukoners really, you know, we really appreciate the industry and people that visit too. Once you go to Dawson or you read about it or hear about it, I think it's intriguing. You know, it's, it's a really neat part of our Canadian history or Canadian
0: mining history. So when you were down in Ottawa, what type of resources were you looking at, and how can they be applied in the Yukon today?
1: So in Ottawa, there was boxes and boxes and boxes of textual documents, and uh, in those documents, there were summarizing reports, there was engineered drawings, there was, you know, resource calculations, anything that you can imagine kind of related to a mining operation or mining history. And then uh, the biggest interest for us was the maps. And so there were, right now, we currently have close to a thousand maps that we have scanned from National Archives. We've also received maps from Parks Canada and as well as the Dawson City Museum. One of the, the the dredging companies responsible for the bulk of this data operated in the Klondike from 1923 to 1966, and uh, and that company is called the Yukon Consolidated Gold Corp. We often will say, you know, YCGC, uh, and that that's what that stands for. And uh, they were one of the most industrious plaster mining operation in Canadian history. So very unique to plaster mining in the fact that we've never seen an operation take on placer mining in such a large scale. And so what they did is that they operated those dredges. They operated up to 12 of these dredges. They employed up to 700 people. And uh, what they you know they had an entire team of engineers and geologists and cartographers, and they went around and inventoried the creeks, the prominent drainages in the Klondike. As a result, we have that's their data. We are mining their data. And so in archives, those maps included just incredible cartography they included baseline surveys of drainages they included drilling you know thawing so when a dredge operation would go into a creek they actually have to thaw that black muck prior to dredging so you've got these thawing blocks you've got dredged areas you've got resource calculations like the maps are amazing they're works of art not only like visually they're works of art but the data within them is substantial yeah the quality of data is just mind blowing this data set is really exciting to work with. Anyway, (laughs) this data-housed archives is truly like a gold mine, you know? And, And we here at the survey were inspired by the industry to go and get this data. And so what I did in Ottawa, along with other colleagues have come at various times, we've identified the material that would be useful for us today. And so the most important thing there are the drilling results. Despite the vintage of this drilling, you know, early 1920s all the way to 1966, it's proving to be very accurate to the modern industry today.
0: Any kind of drilling data is useful, right? Because drilling is so expensive and so valuable in the mining industry. Even if it's old, if it's accurate, then that's a huge advantage to you.
1: So what's really interesting about the drilling data for us, I mean, there's a number of things, but it, it is very rare that you can get bulk or extensive drilling data for one drainage, right? Like usually a company or a claim owner, you know, they have two claims, then your neighbor has four and then so-and-so. And so for us to be able to look at an entire drainage of drilling, we can reconstruct pay channels, we can talk about superficial material, you know, talk about overburden and gravel sections, gravel thickness. Uh, in some cases, we can look at that bedrock surface elevation. I mean, these, these drill holes, you know, ground conditions, we can determine where frozen and thawed areas and creeks are. It's just a really robust set of data. So you have the drilling data combined with dredging data, Yeah, it's a really neat package that the modern mining industry is directly using today.
0: Would you say that there was more drill holes back
1: then than you would have now? You know, these historic companies really took on these large drilling campaigns. So they would have, yeah, they they would have fenced, done a line of drill holes, like tight spacing and really evaluated Mm -hmm. these drainages efficiently because they held all the claims. So yes, there's, you know, the dredging companies held all the claims. And so that just allowed them to really, you know, they truly did
0: inventory the placer distribution in the Klondike. Yeah, this is absolutely, there's absolutely a bit of a legal and logistical aspect to this. So back then there was less companies and you mentioned, for example, the large dredging company that sort of dominated up North. They had rights to everything. They could do everything and they did everything. Exactly. You're taking all this, all the hard work that they did back then when there was no legal or logistical issues and then using it to your advantage today. In light of the data that you were able to, uh, to process in Ottawa, are you revisiting previous mine sites? Yes, So that's quite an interesting uh, piece for us
1: right now, actually, is a lot of these prominent drainages in the Klondike, the larger areas like you've got Bonanza Creek, Hunker Creek, Klondike River, Dominion, Sulfur, you know, those are five of the large areas that have been extensively dredged. They have been explored not only by hand miners and mined by cat miners and extensively by dredges, sometimes twice. We're sort of seeing with a high gold price now, and the efficient mining, you know, and better gold recovery techniques. As you can imagine, in the gold rush, um, these these wash plants maybe weren't the most efficient at capturing very fine gold. So uh, we've had we've had some definitely some improvements to techniques in placer mining, and uh, we're now able to capture a larger portion of that fine gold. So as a result, we're seeing miners interested in re-mining areas that have already been mined. And so in these areas, it includes two targets. You have economic gravel in old tailings, so so material that has already been washed. And you also have little pieces of in-situ gravel left underneath tailings. So You know, between when these dredges, you know, like where a dredge was built, sometimes there's some virgin gravel underneath that pad. Sometimes these dredges were relatively, we're kind of discovering that these dredges were relatively inefficient. So they're mining, you know, like I mentioned, they're, they're a boat floating in a pond, mining with a bucket line. So that, that bucket is kind of scraping the bottom of the surface. They're underwater. They can't see what's happening. And so efficiency is very dependent on your bedrock characteristics, the undulations, right, the, the, the dredge operator wouldn't be able to tell if he's coming up to a high, a bedrock high, and then he's going to leave a remainder of rich, yeah, rich gravel uh, on the bedrock contact. This data is really useful to not only piece together where did the dredges go, how much did they recover, what was their digging depths, and then when we pair that with the drilling data before dredging happened. What did they miss? Exactly. We can be like, oh, these drill holes are deep. You know, the gravel was too thick here that the dredges could not efficiently reach the bedrock surface. Due to a high gold price and the efforts of the Yukon placer mining industry, they're sort of reevaluating these areas that had been previously mined. And uh, they're, you know, some operators are doing quite well. And uh, we're realizing there is a lot of buried
0: potential in and below these old historic mine areas. So you're taking modern technologies and reapplying them to old mine sites in order to be more efficient and uh, extract more valuable materials. Exactly. That answered my follow-up question, which was, are any of the exploration methods used during the Klondike gold rush still in use today? Which I guess you kind of touched on. Yes, we use the same methods, we just use them a bit better.
1: You know, when, when, when I say gold rush, I think of 1896 and, uh, you know, largely people are panning and shafting and trenching and that still exists today. There are definitely people still mining with a shovel, dumping it into a like a little long tom that's kind of separating their gravel and gold, you know, no heavy equipment. That's quite rare now, to be honest. I mean, but we still see it and we still see people shafting. And so that's, creating a hole and a shaft is just a great way for someone to see what the physical bottom of a drainage looks like. So drilling, right? Poking holes. So then you're getting your sample, but shafting is pretty, a great glimpse, a more, a larger view of what may be there. But, uh, so yeah, shafting still happens today. Uh, it's not, again, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and, <laughs> I'm not going to say there's an abundance of shafting happening, but uh, we definitely
0: still see those techniques employed throughout the industry. They're just not candlelit nowadays.
1: Yeah, not candlelit. And uh, they're not trailing in horses, you know, 500 kilometers. And it's just amazing.
0: I would like to touch on Whitehorse a bit because the earlier podcast was based in, in Whitehorse Did Whitehorse play a significant role in the gold rush, aside from being sort of one of the larger cities on the way up there?
1: It's been the kickoff area for most miners. You know, uh, our initial mining history kind of started on the Yukon River, which was, uh, you know, the headwaters are here in in Whitehorse. And so you would have seen in supplies, you know, you would have seen miners here to gather supplies. Uh, Mining history hasn't been so prominent in South Yukon. Of course, in Atlin, BC, just across the border, there's been little pop-up districts. But uh, yeah, Whitehorse was a pretty was a huge hub for the miners to you know start their exploration. And uh, the Yukon River was one of the I mean that was I think the starting point for most of it. The transport, yeah,
0: exactly. Let's go back to the maps in Ottawa. What is the importance of digitizing resources, and how did that process happen? So as you can appreciate,
1: these maps sitting in Ottawa are just really old documents about to fall apart, (laughs) not literally, maybe. But um, so once we highlighted the maps that we would like from archives, we sent them to a scanner or sorry, National Archives, sent them to a contractor to scan. And then we got those TIFF or PDF documents. And then we have been very fortunate to work with some great contractors, Aspect North here in Whitehorse and uh, she's largely been responsible for digitizing those so what that means is finding their place in earth you know which has actually been a really large challenge for these historic datas and sometimes like we see just a little cabin you know a little cabin symbol and then there's a confluence of such and such tribe to the Yukon river and so we can kind of manipulate that map to find its actual place in time and uh, it may sound a bit far-fetched, like, so you're just kind of putting these maps into the real world. And uh, what we are what we have found is that the cartography and the accuracy of these maps is literally 99%. Like, even for the vintage of the early days, their their skills, you know, I can't even imagine the amount of surveying to accuracy that went on there because, I mean, they didn't have handheld GPSs like us. But... Sometimes we even find these drill holes that were that we digitized from the maps, and I, I'll find them in the field or evidence old evidence of collars or something still remaining there. So that's we can kind of pinpoint how accurately they are georeferenced. So once the map is georeferenced, we then also, with the contractor, Laura Greaves, is going along and digitizing point features and polygon features. So these point features include drill holes and um, you know thawing points or just like kind of a probe to see total depth. We've got shaft locations. And then those polygons include things like the dredge, where the dredge actually went. You have historic workings like in hydraulic tailings. Um, so yeah, we, we have this incredible robust uh, web application at the Geological Survey website. And that displays all of this data that we currently have digitized. And uh, our technical services department here at YGS, and with a with a huge thank you to Brett Elliott, have put this web app together. And on it, you can cruise around on sat with satellite imagery in the background and see where drill holes are, where dredge limits are, where historic workings are. It's just so this is this is we're we're pretty proud of this product from start to finish because we have found these old maps, found these old reports. We have had help digitizing them, and uh, we
0: now it's a pretty user-friendly product for the industry. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sydney. It was so interesting to hear about your work with the Yukon Geological Survey. Would it be accurate to say that you are both a geologist and a bit of a historian? <laughs> I guess so, now. I never actually looked at it like that, but
1: um, yeah, maybe that's my new title. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting work. And uh, combining the two has been uh, a really neat
0: project for me for the last eight or nine years. Geologist and geological historian. (laughs) Perfect. I'll take that. Thanks you so much for your time today. It was great to meet you. Bye, Sydney.
1: Bye. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Hope to see you panning in the Yukon sometime.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Bye. Sydney's description of historical resources and their use in placer mining today is mind-blowing. I would have never guessed how important old maps and drill data would be a 100 years after the fact. The abundance and accuracy of information really speaks to the dedication of gold stampeders and early gold miners. I hope to find myself in the Yukon one day to pan for gold and get a taste of placer mining. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your family and friends. You can find more episodes of the Geology Podcast Network wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Traveling Geologist to never miss a new episode release. Backyard Geology Canada edition is part of the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologist.